Welcome back, everybody, to the Ones Ready Team Room. You got myself, you got Trent. Peaches is off in the wind somewhere, as Peaches always does, but we got a good one for you this week. So I got a crazy message on LinkedIn. I had put a message out. And I was like, hey, we really want some people with unique experiences to come on the podcast. And into my DMs comes Lieutenant Colonel Brian Slade. Brian was like, hey, I think we've flown together. And I was like, you know, I think we have too. And I recognize his face, but I did a little bit of research. Brian Slade is the author of the Cleared Hot podcast or the Cleared Hot podcast, the Cleared Hot, uh, Cleared Hot Lessons in Afghanistan. It was a book uh, that he wrote about his time as an Apache pilot. But he has a story that is way bigger and way more involved than just writing a book and becoming an Air Force HH-60 pilot. So Brian Slade, welcome on. Thanks for coming on, sir. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing Pretty great, um, despite what I mentioned earlier, getting over a flu. But, uh, you know, the, the book's about resilience, so we will march on. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the magic of podcasting and Internet stuff is that we can always just edit it. So nobody's going to be able to see if you jumped off screen or if you had to go for a second. So yeah. we appreciate you coming on. So, sir, I want to I want to take you all all the way back to the you know the beginning of your career, and this is stuff that until I did show prep, I had no idea, and it was a, it was a really cool thing. And you know, I am the I am the big brother of three little brothers that are all in the army, two of which are army aviators, and both of those dudes ended up crossing over from their initial stuff. So let's take it back to all the way at the beginning of your career. You decided you wanted to get into the military, and you wanted to be at, at first. I, I believe you always wanted to be an aviator. Is that true? That is true. Uh, my plan was to fly helicopters from the start. Took a little detour, though. I ended up uh, learning about a program called the Simultaneous Membership Program, where I could enlist and uh, go to college with ROTC and be enlisted at the same time. And it just maximized benefits as far as the education benefits and gave me another, uh, they call them MOS, you know, in the Army, another job title, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you decided that you wanted to serve. What, what was the driving force behind that? Was that something that you always knew you wanted to do as a young child? Or, you know, what, what was the thing, that the impetus that brought you into the service in general? You know, I, I sure didn't know when I was a kid. I, I thought I was going to be a veterinarian, which is, you know, really close to the military. But, sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> Veterinarians, they, uh, they get a discounted in, Golden Corral, from what I'm aware. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Then I got to, the, I actually followed around with a vet. We did vet stuff. And I was like, yeah, this is cool. I think I want to do this. And then they're like, yeah, it's eight to 10 years of school and you make this much. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound fun. And then as I got... <laughs> Older, I, I, you know, I just was big into sports. I was a kind of an adrenaline junkie. I was always patriotic. Got and my, I'm one of eight kids, but my dad's a teacher. So when I got to college type time frame, there was no money going to be paying for, for school. So I started looking around, and uh, it just seemed like a really good fit. I was like, hey, this could, this is something that I'm patriotic, so that fits that box. Um, I, I like something that has some adrenaline with it. It could fit that box, depending on what job I get. And uh, it's going to pay for my school. So there's there's three things that I that fit fit where I'm at, and uh, it just made sense to do it. And then it turned out to be a better, even a better fit than I thought, because I was initially was planning on just being a guard reserve guy, and I I'm now at 27 years. Uh, we finished up my 20 active. I was seven enlisted, and then uh, you know uh, 12 years in the army, and then transitioned over to the Air Force and still in the Air Force finishing up right now. That's crazy. So obviously you started, uh, you know, before September 11th, 2001, that was the impetus for a lot of guys and, and, you know, our kind of, uh, era. And you were obviously just before that. Am, am I tracking that correctly? 1996. 96. When I entered. 
So you had been in the army for five years and 2001 happens and you know, you were always on that path. So you were in the army, your MOS was like diesel mechanic. You're moving through, you know, um, um, that time. When, when did you decide, like, I, I guess I'm trying to figure the timeline out, right? So you, you enlist, you go through the simultaneous program that you were talking about. So you're getting your college done and then September 11th happens. How did that change your mindset on being in the military? And then how did, did that affect your future plans at all? Did you, did you step on the gas at that point? You're like, I want to go get in the fight or what was your mindset when September 11th happened? Yeah. I mean, you pretty much hit all the buzzwords there. I, I was in college about halfway through uh, the ROTC program. Um, I did take a detour. I start, I enlisted and then I went to Brazil for two years as a, on a, on a church mission. Right. So Oh, that's nice. that's where the timeline skips forward a little bit. That so that's why I was like, wait, I'm missing a couple of years. That's why I was two years okay. in Brazil. Came back, went the, the ROTC program was gone. Went to a community college for a year. Came back, ROTC scholarship, ROTC program came back, and then I was halfway through that when 9/11 hit. Uh, I I mean I was coming back from class, and and you know everybody remembers where you were when that happened. And as I walked into my apartment, sure. my my roommates. You know, one of the one of the guys is like effing ragheads, and I'm like, what What's going on? You know, I had no idea, right? And and uh, and then they turn on the news and everything, and of course, at that moment, you know, that's I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. Let's go. Let, you know, let's. I wasn't a pilot mm -hmm. yet. I was still diesel mechanic. You know, go finishing up my officer commission and everything. I was like, I'll, I'll go turn wrenches. Let's go do whatever we're gonna do. You know, uh, and but it wasn't my time, you know, the unit, you didn't, didn't deploy and I ended up finishing up and commissioning and then going to flight school. And while at yeah. flight school, um, I was, when I was learning my advanced aircraft, the, the Apache, which I was doing in Arizona, there's a co-located mm -hmm. guard unit, the first of the 285th that was next on the chopping block to go deploy. And so I said, Hey, if you guys will give me a flying position, not, not a, not a desk, not a desk position. I will yeah. come over and deploy with you. Right. And, uh, and so we kind of did that little horse trade. And, and then I, that was my first deployment was to Afghanistan and that was in 2005. So it was well after, um, nine 11, but the moment it happened, I wanted to go, you know? Yeah. As many of us did, you know, that was a feeling that we all had, you know, for Trent and I, that's essentially what brought us in. Like we saw that and straight from civilian. And for me, I, I never had a thought in my head that I wanted to be in the military. That was never a thing, but you just knew you saw it and you were like, Hey, this is a, uh, it's time to go do that thing. So as you were getting through your uh, pilot training uh, through Rucker, like, did, did you always know you wanted to fly Apaches? Was that your goal from the very beginning or did you just want to fly in the army and Apache sort of presented itself? Yeah. Uh, so Yes, is the answer. <laughs> I, <laughs> nice. I, All right, cool. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. The Apache was sure. cool and I thought it was cool, but my and my guard unit was already Apache Apache like that's the that's what I was it was foregone conclusion. That's what I was gonna do. Right. Um so I didn't realize how awesome that machine is until I learned it and then even really didn't fully appreciate it until I went back to another airframe that wasn't as awesome as the Apache, right? <laughs> you know, and so you got to compare contrast. And I still, you know, every helicopter in the military inventory is pretty cool, honestly, for their own reasons. But, but the, you just can't touch the creme de la creme. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the, 
That's the be- that's the most badass helicopter in the world. It just agree, is. straight yeah. up agree. From from being on the ground and having Apaches overhead, I can tell you, it is like a warm safety blanket that makes you feel better about your entire life. And uh, got a couple friends that are Apache pilots, and they rave about it as well. So as you yeah. get through flight school, you're flying the dream helicopter, the creme de la creme of attack. It's it's essentially a killing machine that repels the earth and is actually able to gain lift in such a way. Uh, that's just the coolest thing ever. Uh, the family guy clip of the flying death machine. Hilarious. Um, you know, as you, as you start stepping out the door, 2005, Afghanistan is on the horizon. I want to start talking about how it affected you personally, because in your book, Cleared Hot Lessons in Leadership, you, you, you break us down how it is that you progress through a bunch of, you know, interpersonal struggles, how that affected you mentally as you go through your deployments. And I want to start kind of laying the groundwork for that now. So as you start getting ready to go, you know, through your training, you get done, that has its own stressors associated with it. And now you're ready to step out the door for the first time in 2005 to go to Afghanistan. What were your interpersonal relationships like? And what was the feeling that you had as you were getting ready to go? Obviously, on the work side of it, there's, you know, patriotism and, hey, I want to go do a job and probably a sense of accomplishment. Like I came in to do this thing and now I'm going to go do the thing that I got in to do. But from a, from a personal standpoint, what was your mindset and what's, what space were you in as you were getting ready to step out the door in 2005? A uh, great question. So during that whole process, I met and married a woman, right? Um, and about five months before we were to step out the door was when we got married. Um, unbeknownst to me that she was struggled from mental health issues uh borderline personality disorder some people will be familiar with that some people won't when i heard it i was like oh borderline it sounds like kind of because it's borderline right um mm-hmm. which i didn't realize that that means you're borderline like everything like you're borderline ocd you're borderline medic president you're borderline this you're borderline that and there is no cure for it like these other you know individual mental health things where you could like maybe take some medication and help this one is just like it is what it is and you got to deal with it um, and so there was that going on in the background during our spin up and preparation to go deploy. And, uh, and that was a, that was a, that was a game changer for me. Cause I really had to learn to compartmentalize. I was ex- actually excited to go, but at the same time, like super anticipate, like have a anxiety, a little bit of anxiety of like, I'm leaving this woman behind that just is really struggling at life. And sure. we just got married and, and I don't know, you know, she, she, I mean, there's a couple of times before we left where she talked about taking her own life, those kind of things where you're like, how do you, how do you justify leaving? But at the same time, it's a duty and I want, you know, so it was really kind of mixed emotions. And, and I actually got put on the advanced, advanced party, right? I was the unit mobilization, mobilization officer. And so I was the first, I was scheduled to be the first dude boots on ground in a unit who none of us have ever deployed. So it was really kind of, there's a lot of ex- anticipation and excitement. Wow, no, no big deal here, sir. The old guys are like, Hey, so what can I expect? Like, I don't know. I've never deployed. You know, like, <laughs> why are you asking me? Wait, why is he asking me? It's, it's like the scene in, it's like the scene in Black Hawk now where the guy comes out and tells everybody, Hey, you're going to do great. And they all look around. They're like, yeah, he's never done that before. That made me really, <laughs> that made me yeah. really nervous. Yeah. You know, so you just, you know, it's a, it's a pickup game and you go, go check it out. And it was actually getting into country was really awesome because we flew with the, like me and two of my maintainers got into C-17. They're all with three of our Apaches slung, you know, 
slung cots underneath them, whatever, and and, and mm-hmm. did the whole ride over there. And uh, it was a kind of a, a surreal, a surreal feeling as we got over Bad Guy Land. Obviously, they come up over the intercom and they're like, "Prepare for tactical descent," you know. And I'm like, "What the heck is a tactical?" That's how descent? all C-17 pilots talk. Yeah, prepare for yeah. tactical descent. <laughs> Hey, which later yeah. you realize there's nothing tactical about a C-17. I mean, what? It's a C-17. It's, it's yeah, the size yeah, of five yeah. school buses and it flies 20 miles an hour. Like you wave gooses around. You're like, come on, geese. Just we're doing something. Yeah. yeah, but it did. It dove, man. And I was like, why are we diving? You know, why are we diving? And like, and then, you know, the chains on the, the helicopters kind of lifted up and everything. And, and uh, then it pulled up right before we landed and it just did a normal landing. And, uh, you know, as, as as time went marked on, like we said, I realized I think they just did that because they were allowed to, and I would have if I yeah. were them. Well, they got a medal for it. <laughs> yeah, when they yeah. when they do those tag, all they have to say is like, "Oh, look, there's a fire over there. We uh, we got shot at on the way in." All right, everybody. <laughs> yeah, but it's like ninety like percent of the military experience, though, right? Like no one ever tells you what's actually happening. Things just happen, and every you know, you're like, "Oh, like the first time you're on a, a helo and they do the, the test fire and all that other stuff," you're like. Mm-hmm. How come no one told me that we were going to be shooting? <laughs> what are like, they shooting? Why are we shooting? What are they shooting? What are we doing? <laughs> Guys, what are you doing? Like, yeah, like nobody, t- that's, that's hilarious. It's, it's exactly right, Trent. Like on your first patrol, you're out there and like somebody just like looks at you and goes like, hey man, test fire. And you're like, uh, okay, yeah, cool. And then everybody, what is happening? Where are we shooting? What is going on? Guys, you could have explained that one a little bit better. What was your, when was your last desk pop? December of 2008. Yeah, no. And when I when I landed there, like you said, I didn't know what to expect. It was early morning in Bagram. Um, C seventeen rolls to a stop. Back of the thing starts to open, and you know, it's that clamshell opening, and it was just like out of the movies, like really bright light comes in that you can't see because your eyes have been accustomed to the dark. And then, uh, and then the, the the smell hit me, and it was it wasn't um, it wasn't bad, right? And I expected it to be bad. I expected it to be kind of stinky because we're at war. Or, or something. I expected something bad. It actually smelled kind of nice. Now, if I'd land in Kandahar, it is stunk, right? But but Bagram, yeah, because of the because of Poo Lake. Yeah, it depends on the wind direction and never mind. Lake <laughs> but like, like exactly. So that thing opened up, and then my next uh, my next uh, shock was seeing the Rocky Mountains. Was what it, you know? It looked like the Rocky Mountains. I was like, what the heck? Big majestic mountains with snow on them, and I was like. It's beautiful. Wait, you know, I just pictured it was going to be ugly, right? Because I'd never been there before. And like, like you said, Trent, nobody's there to meet us or greet us. We're just like, we're like, hey, we're here, you know, and nobody's we got there. these helicopters. And yeah. they want these things. They got guns and rockets and shit. Yes. Had to go find people and figure out where we, and you know, we'd never been there. Didn't even know which direction to go. And but what really stuck out to me is that there was beauty in the, in a land of ugliness. And, and that stood out to me and would, would form a, a lesson that I would use to teach guys down the road is there's beauty and ugliness. So. so, so how, how, how well did you adapt to all that change though? Like, it seems like you're the, you're the guy in the unit that had probably the, the most stuff happening at home. So of course they sent you out early, which everybody loves explaining to their wives, why nobody else can do it and they have to do it. And then it's your first rotation ever. And, and, and like, I think at a certain point, we just stop trying to anticipate what's going to happen next. And you just learn to live in that, that moment. Like how long did it take for you to get there on your first rotation where you just accept what's happening and live in that moment and, and try to keep that, all that other stress away, right? Like you can only stress about so many things at one time. 
And so like you're you got to get those helicopters off the bird, but like you have stuff going on back home. Also, you don't know what you're doing and you're about to fly into combat. So like how, how does you how did you go about processing all those things to get to a, a, a semi normal, you know, state of mind to, to get the job done? Yeah, I pretty much just lived life like an alcoholic one day at a time. <laughs> but, but no, but seriously, you know, I did what most guys do and told my leadership absolutely nothing about my uh, problems at home. They had no clue what was going on because yeah. I, that was that was my problem to deal with. And I didn't need to tell anybody else. Right. And one of the biggest mistakes that we all make is we just like, I got this shit. Don't worry about it. You know, we all and, do it. Every yeah, single one we of do. Us. So there was no reason for them not to send me first. And then, and on that note, I didn't tell her that I was first. So like, <laughs> you know, wow. this is really healthy behavior. Yeah, well, this, this is actually a strong move. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah, essentially a strong. Yeah, this is. The, I'll tell you what, this is a roadmap. Everybody that's uh, listening out there, do the opposite of this, and you're going to be great. So <laughs> we had a unique when, uh, when you don't clearly and openly communicate with everybody, your chain of command and your support structure at home, you can get a lot done. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> yep. T- remove barriers by not putting them in the way in the first place. Um, Just ignoring them. Yeah. If the barriers don't exist. Yeah. Yeah. No, we had a unique situation that made that easy to do. We actually had to, we were Apache alpha model qualified prior to this deployment. And so what they did is they put us through a unit filling training program in, in, in uh, Texas for eight months prior to our deployment. So our whole deployment was almost 23 months long. Cause it was back to back. So we did that. Right. And, and she was able to come visit periodically through that. And then we did a big see you guys later at Texas. And, and so that was done already. And then there, everybody was in kind of a holding pattern to get there. And I was just the first one to get out. So I'd already said goodbye with everybody else. So it was kind of easy to kind of not even mention that I was the first one leaving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you get there, no one is telling me what to do. The, the crew I'm assuming is being like, get your helicopters off my bird. And you're like, where do I put them? They're like, not my problem. Like how long did it take from you landing and then getting all your folks there before you actually start going out on missions? And did you feel that like anticipation rising the whole time where you're actually going to be in the air over, uh, you know, in a, in a combat situation over bad guy territory? It didn't take us too long to unload, but we had two C-17s land. On our C-17, as they started to lower that ramp, um, the back of the tail of the Apache was up on the ramp, and they were all chained down. Loadmaster forgot to unchain them. And as it started to come down, we could hear, and we're screaming, stop, 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 you know, because it was going to basically origami the freaking Apache, right? And so they stopped, and we saved that one. But on the other bird, they did the same thing, and nobody was there to yell, stop. And so class A, total oh. loss, two in a pad key. Oh, my gosh. They, it just Did they just it. break the tail off of it? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Our, listen, guys, our bad, okay? That, like, <laughs> next time, we're going to get this thing knocked down. Sorry like, about folding your helicopter in, fat, <laughs> in half. Peaches is going to be so mad at us when he tries to edit this out. So, hey, everybody, little technical glitch. That happened. It was 100% my fault. Uh, leave me your favorite insult in the comment section. I'm here for it. Brian, we were just getting into, uh, you know, to cage everybody. We were just talking about, you know, getting those birds off the plane for the first time. Shout out to that C-17 crew that folded one of your helicopters in half. But after that little misstep or that, I think I'm supposed to call it an opportunity for excellence. After that initial uh, class A mishap that happened before you guys even got off the helicopters, 
now we're talking about getting these birds ready to go and, and getting ready for the first combat mission. So over to you. Yeah. So the, that bird was the, the helicopter was the first one on and the other two were on. So there has had to pend for an investigation. So effectively three of our patches were out of, out of the fight right from the start. Oh, wow. Because right there was away. like an investigation that had to go. Now they, they did get through that fairly quickly, but right off the bat, I got to go find the task force commander and say, Hey, we're here. <laughs> we don't have an Apache because it's, <laughs> and you know, so, you know, right. And, and here's the deal, active duty versus guard. There's already this like, right thing. Like guard guys are this and Friction, active duty guys right. are that or whatever. So it's not going to help build that type of relationship, even though we had nothing to do with it. It was, you know, it was a C-17 loadmaster that just freaking wanted to hear the guitar string sound of a chain getting taut. Well, but, I'll tell you why. Is, is you guard guys are always too happy. Right. That's the problem. We hate it. You guys, it like, really talk about how good mad. your lives are and, like, you have, like, this balance between, like, real life and, like, your military life. And you guys are always smiling. That's why active duty gets a little, uh, yeah, anyway. Stop smiling. <laughs> yes. Quit it. Yeah. Zero fun, sir. Yeah, so, like... <laughs> So as far as anticipatory, like you said, Trent, were you anticipating getting over? Here's what we thought going into Afghanistan. At least this is what I thought. And I think this was kind of the sentiment of most people. Afghanistan wasn't in the news at that point. It was Iraq, 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 right? And then like, hey, you guys are going to Afghanistan. Dang it, B team. That sucks. You know, so like that's what we thought we're going to like, you know. Wow. Fly some escorts, probably wouldn't shoot anything. You know what? You know it's Afghanistan. There's nothing going on there. Wrong, <laughs> right. right? Yeah, well, as we what know crazy now. Thing. Yeah, yeah, as we know now, very wrong. Because I've been to both of those theaters multiple times now, and um, the one that has made me check check the bed bed frame saying made it out of there both t- or three times was Afghanistan. Right? Afghanistan's the one where I'm like, whoo, made it. Back home, Iraq. I never really felt that way. Right now, I know that Iraq had its heydays and different types. I wasn't involved in most of those. Most of my Iraq stuff was young, right? But, but Afghanistan was not. And so when we first started flying out of Bagram, I would yeah, I was looking. I was trying to find Abu Dhabi, you know, looking around, saying, "Hey, is that a bad guy? Is that a bad guy?" And then first first couple of missions really were just uneventful escorts. And uh, you know, I wore my neck raw with a you know, with the armor, because I was doing this so much, pivoting my head around. And I learned how to wear it and, you know, wear it down a little bit and fray it to make it soft. But, but like, you know, you get into a rhythm and realize there's contested areas and then there's contested areas, right? So mm-hmm. um, for, I don't think I got into an, an actual engagement with the enemy for about a month and a half, mm-hmm. right? And so... At that point, it was kind of like supporting the what we thought. Eh, we're just going to fly around. We're going to escort. We're going to do these kind of things. But we had a detachment in Jalalabad. I wasn't in that detachment initially, and we kept getting emails back from those guys saying, "Holy crap, this stuff is real. We're taking, you know, we're fighting the enemy. We're doing this. We're doing that." Da, 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 da. We're like, "Man, eh, just you know, war stories, war stories." <laughs> yeah, because there's a bunch, bunch yeah. of guys out there that just want to say one up us, you know, like because we're doing ring routes and they're yeah, whatever, and. But there was also some drama and some leadership issues going on out there, too. And my commander, he's like, okay, I'm going to send you out there as a detachment commander. And I want you to just kind of, like, fix all the stuff that's that's happening. And I was like, what's happening? <laughs> you know, I, I didn't even know. And he goes, I don't know. I just know there's problems, so go fix it. And and all he right. was actually really cool because he did give that empowerment. He's like, right. 
go do what you got to do. I trust your judgment. Just iron it out. And then I'm going to leave you out there. And I, so I went out there and I started flying and then I did start hearing about this stuff and they're telling the stories and it's all there. And, and initially I was a co-pilot because I was young time guy coming into this deployment. By the time I left, I had a, a, what, like 13, 1400 hours, which is a decent amount. Um, and most of it and thousand of it was combat because I got there with 300. Right. So like Jeez. my learning <laughs> no curve, big deal. Yeah. So my learning curve was, you know, doing this, right. Right. And I made aircraft commander shortly into, into the, the deployment, but I hadn't made it yet at this point. So, um, we're flying and I'm a co-pilot in the front seat as a gunner. And we're, we, we roll around the corner and, and we hear this, I, I remember the call sign was Titan one, one. He's like, we're pinned down as they were pinned down on this cliff side. And they had, had had like an IED go off. Now they have a convoy that's freaking ambushed. They're getting hit from all different sides. And I, I mean, as he's talking on the radio, I can hear the gunfire on both sides coming, you know, whatever. And um, up until this point, every time we we showed up, Taliban stopped shooting, right? They didn't have to, they did, you know, they're just like, oh, oh, I'm not going to do anything right now, right? <laughs> but, and, uh, but these guys did it. They kept shooting and it was daytime. And so I'm like, okay, they're shooting. We can do this where how do you find these guys yep. right and it was just this whole i thought it would be so much easier they're shooting we should know where they're at no there's a development of this situation and you're flying while they're shooting because you can't hear it you just got to develop it through the ground guys of azimuths direction smokes trying to figure out where they're at and uh that was a big learning curve for me and we're, and we're just so on the other side there's a big we call it a canyon. Like they're up on one cliff on one side, a canyon in between, and then a shelf on the other side. That that's where we think most of the stuff is coming from. So we're over there trying snooping and pooping, and my AC gets really, really aggressive. I mean, he's like twenty feet off the deck, just like not going super fast. I mean, we are like a target if you've ever seen a target. And I'm like, well, he knows more than me, so I'm just up there looking, you know, at the acquisition display, trying to find in, zoom in, do these kind of things trying to figure out what muzzle flash looks like in the daytime because I haven't seen anything yet. And uh, and all of a sudden, um, we're sitting there and we're over that ledge and we basically just come over the ledge to where now we're over the canyon and we just got rocked. I mean, it just, boom, whole helicopter lifts up and we just fall and we're falling into that canyon. And I'm like, I'm in the front seat and I'm, I can see the rock we're going to hit. I'm like, this sucks, man. First engagement, <laughs> one engage, one boom, and and we lose, and we lose. You know, spoiler alert. I'm here. We didn't, but right, yeah. I was going to ask if you lived. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you live? <laughs> Did you live? Um, right? What happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happened is RPG blew up right underneath us, um, created really nasty air, turbulent air. We can't fly in that stuff, so it felt like we were falling. He dug my my AC, who's awesome guy and had you know good good hands realizes that we're not actually with no engines we're just falling through bad air gets us out of the bad air flies back up and you know th at that moment i was just like this is real you know and 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 i remember th I, this is what i said i said so that's what that feels like <laughs> you know oh and gosh. uh it and he was saying like no, 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 string, string, profanity, profanity, you know, just, just going off nuts. And I was just, and I, and it was weird. Like I just kind of came down and I was like, that's what that feels like. All right. We got to figure out where that came from because 
that almost killed us, right? And it, it was. I gotta go kill that guy. I gotta. I gotta return the favor for that guy trying to effing kill me. Yes, and you don't know how you're gonna react to those experiences until you're in them, right? So, I'd never been in that, and now, now I know. Now I know that's how, that's how I react. I actually, come down about two pegs, and I guess that's a good way to be wired because then you can start thinking through the stuff. And we went back up there, and all of a sudden, I realized what. I was in my peripherals. I was seeing muzzle flash, right? Just, just a little in the daytime. It's really quick. And it's really I'm like, wait, muzzle flash. I'm seeing muzzle flash. And he's like, and I called the ground guy. You got anybody on this side? Nobody on this side. There's nobody on this side. So then Doug's like, start shooting them. So I start shooting with the 30, the muzzle flash. And, uh, and now for the first time in my life, I've pulled that trigger lots of times, pulled it lots of times at targets. I pulled it lots of times. at just test fires. Like you said, it's the first time I pulled the trigger where a new life just went away. Like, you know, where I'm pulling the trigger and bad guys are no longer with us, right? Now they're bad guys and they're, they chose this. And so it's all this type of a decision making that you need to understand on, on their side of the fence. But on my side of the fence, it's the first time where I'm pulling trigger and life is going away. And and it's weird, right? Like how many, how many thoughts you can have during that first engagement? Like you can kind of like keep it all together, but like how fast your brain processes everything. It's like, Hey, this is the first time someone's shooting at me. I take this Mm -hmm. a little personally. I'm going to go through this experience. I might die for real. Like I've done all this before though. So like, it's pretty automatic. And then like you do that and you're like, am I supposed to feel a certain type of way? Like, I know what just happened. Like, am I supposed to, I don't know. I don't know what's going on anyway. Onto the next target. And like, you don't really have time to process it all, but like all that stuff happens. I mean, I don't know how fast milliseconds, but like it's you've been training for this it, for years and boom. I, I, I don't even, you know, that's the first time I pulled the trigger and life went away. I don't think I thought about it right then. I think it was actually once we landed. Right. Um, yeah. But it, but it did feel different. It felt different in the moment, but it wasn't that deep, like pensive thing. It was just like, Oh, yeah. This is different, you know. This is the, mostly it was different in the fact that they're trying to shoot us out of the air, right? Right. right. Yeah. This is real. Targets don't do this, right? Um, right. Yeah. And yeah you so, don't have like deep thoughts. I think my brain just was, was like putting like markers right in your memory. Like, hey, something interesting happened here, where you don't really like. You're not like having like a deep conversation with yourself yeah. about it. It's like boop, new experience. Let's explore boop, that yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. It's like a video yeah. game. Like, let's bing, come back. Let's ex- yeah. That that's your save point. You're gonna so, explore yeah. that one later. Little bookmarks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's actually a really good way to put it. But uh, crazy enough, like I said, none of us really had a lot of experience. So we went around and we uh, did the exact same thing again and got rocked again. In the exact same spot again, right? And this time, completely flipped the helicopter to where we're coming down, almost rotor first down into the into the canyon. Um, you know what? What's that, what's that uh, phrase? Do the same thing, expecting different results. You have the definition of insanity. insanity. Yeah, one hundred percent. But here's the funny part: like I had like five minute old wisdom now. So as soon as it happened, I looked inside. I'm like, engines are good. We could fly out of this, right? Like because. <laughs> I, you know, I, I had five minute, five minute wisdom. And at that point we roll, roll out. And I'm like, Doug, that's twice, man. We obviously there's a dude on the other side. He can't be hitting us where he's hitting us from where we're trying to engage the enemy. We're going right through his kill box, right at that spot on the other side. Right. So we, and at this time, at this point, the, uh, the ground guy actually saw the mustache. I called the RPG mustache from the RPG. And, uh, and kind of tried to walk us onto it. And then we, we, you know, we threw rockets and 30 down into that and no more RPGs. But 
But that was the first engagement. That was my first engagement. And that was when all of a sudden I was like, oh, Afghanistan should be on the news. It just isn't, you know. And uh, that was the first of many, many, because after that, it just seemed like they just kept coming and coming. But that broke the seal. But like, like we said, as soon as we got back to the FOB and I stepped on the ground, I wasn't flying anymore. That's when I was like, holy shit. This is real, man. These guys are actively trying to kill us, and we are killing them. We killed a bunch today. Like, I don't know how many. We just killed a, a, bu- a bunch of dudes that, did, that were, had enough conviction to shoot at something, a flying death tank, and they had that much conviction, which I honestly respect, because yep. that's, a, that's an overwhelming odd that you're willing to do. Uh, now they're gone. They're gone, and they're gone because of us, right? So that's when the the deep, the, Hey, let's go back to that marker. And that's when you start mm-hmm. thinking about that stuff. Right. And I was always okay with it because that's what we're, that's what we're there for. But taking life is still taking life, you know, and that's still something that is, uh, is significant. It, it should be significant. If you have any human nature in you now, people, people will deal with it in different ways. You know, people will dehumanize the enemy. People will, you know, lots of different ways to make it not as big a deal, but, uh, it's taken another life regardless. So it is a big deal. Now it's okay in war. I mean, it's okay as taking a life can be right. Yeah. Uh, but, but it is. But like, it is. I, I think one of the places where our, or some of our, our issues come from is that the expectation versus reality situation that you were talking about, like, Hey, we're going to go to Afghanistan. It's going to be chill. Cause I think everybody kind of had that experience. If, if it was your first time, nothing, nobody on CNN is talking about Afghanistan. Nothing's going on over there. And it's like, if you if you roll through that spin up process real quick and you get over there, you just don't understand what the reality is. So like, and then like I don't know. It, it obviously I'm drawing like personal conclusions or 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 um uh whatever. But like I remember going out the first few times and it's like there's nothing going on. Like we're just out here chilling. Like I know like some some people have died out here, but like it's, it's pretty chill. And then when you hit that point and it, it's crazy. I just think that that's kind of where some of like your brain doesn't quite know how to handle it. If that bridge is too far between expectation and reality, like it takes time to, and, and, and probably some help to bridge that gap and to make that normalized in your brain. So you can deal with it later on. I don't know. That's just me. Maybe. Yeah, no, I think that's very common. I actually talked to uh, one of my buddies who's a ranger and, and I, I, I was sharing an experience of where we were in the gunfight and then all of a sudden you're out of the gunfight and it's just, it's beautiful and it's serene. And, but you were, you were just in this crazy chaos and he, and he described a gunfight on the ground where they were, you know, taking fire, all kinds of stuff. nuts out, And then it ends and it's over and he's laying there and a little bird lands right next to him and starts chirping. And it's just like, you know, and he's just like, what? Yeah. What? It's you know it's the most surreal. Th- it's like going to a different planet. It is so hard to explain to somebody else, like it, to to explain GWAT in that time frame. You know, Trent and I typically have way shorter deployment windows. You know, like you know, you have a, a two week to a month spin up. You know, you have a training cycle, but you got that really like two weeks to a month where you're really doing like out processing and getting your will in order and all this other weird stuff that young men should never have to do. You know, twenty one year olds talking about their impending death for a month. And then yeah. you you show up to this place and the dust is different. The smells are different. The scenery is different. And then one day you just kind of get on a, you know, for us, we get on a helicopter, you're walking there and then the world blows up around you. Time slows down to seconds, to milliseconds, to moments in time. And then just like that, it's over. 
And suddenly you're back at a defect somewhere eating lunch, talking about the crazy story you had where, you know, we had this time in Iraq where literally the world was blowing up around us on our first deployment. And less than two hours later, like we were back, we had a shower. The sun was coming up in Iraq. It was four in the morning. We were eating breakfast and literally I looked at one of my ranger buddies and I was just like, oh, that was, well, that was weird, huh? That's kind of like a weird night at work. Um, and we all, I like to think of trauma as, as a, as a cup, right? So we all have glasses and they're all, you know, of different size. Uh, and we fill those cups up to a point and we try to deal with it the best that you can, but modern warfare and especially in GWAT, you know, you spent 15 months there and your, your train up cycle was a little bit longer. So eight months, you know, you had 23 months kind of living in this space, but you know, I have PJ friends that deployed three times in a year, you know, that, you know, three months here, two months there, three months there in and out the door just the emotional toll that that takes to go downrange, to face your impending death, to get in these situations, that all starts to build up. So when you got home from your first deployment from Bagram, you got back, what was the reintegration process like? Because you kind of left, you know, you didn't, you didn't tell your, you didn't tell your chain that you were having, uh, that you have some, you know, emotional stressors on that side. And you didn't tell your wife that you have some work stressors on that side. And she was dealing with her own, you know, insurmountable, you know, she was on her own deployment. Um, and that had to be tough. So as you were moving through that Bagram deployment and you came home, what was the reintegration like with the family? Well, um, I, I talk about it in my book. It was a very strained um, relationship throughout the, the duration of the deployment. It was super uh, stressful. And this is something that I kind of bring home to people when I'm talking to them. I'm like, look, I have all these stories in this book where we're going toe to toe with the enemy. I, I, you know, one of them, my, one of them, I lose an engine and, and I, my flight controls get jammed and my co-pilot gets his leg blown up all in the same second. Right. That's an mm -hmm. extreme event. Right. So there's lots of these type of events in, in this book, but what left the most residual was the caustic relationship with my significant other downrange. And the reason I share that with people is like, um, pain is pain. Trauma is trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like a lot of times it's easy for people to say, well, you guys went to war. You guys had tra traumatic experiences. You guys obviously sh will have, you know, post-traumatic. I call my, my whole goal of the book is that people should have post-traumatic stress growth. It doesn't mean that they aren't going to have pain from those experiences, but, but you absolutely can use them as foundational vice, something that's tripping you up in your day-to-day -day routine because it happened in the past. That's where we got to put it. And that's where it needs to be filed. And that's that at that point, it's a foundation of the best version of yourself. But coming back into reintegration was a, a very difficult process, to be honest, because th that strained relationship of almost two years where we were married for five months before we'd already been separated almost five times as long as we were together. Right. Wow. And and so, it, you know, we, we made some goals and we started working on it. Uh, spoiler alert! I ten years later, I did get divorced, <laughs> um, so it didn't it didn't make it. But we not for lack of effort, not for lack of trying, because we we kept trying for quite a while. And I did roll it right into rescue, where we were doing three on three off. Uh, you know, as far as the deployments were were going on that too. So there was continued strain. There was continued, you know, separation in, in that vote. But really, the less the takeaway for me was we always see people. And 
you know, society will be like, this guy started in this really bad situation and then this bad thing happened to him and then this bad thing happened and this bad thing happened to him. And then we're like, despite all odds, they became this amazing person, right? Despite, despite all those odds. And, and it's not, it's not despite those odds. It's because of those odds that they became that person because they learned where to file that stuff, right? They learned how to file that stuff, right? And so really when you're exposed to extreme situations, you have an immense opportunity to create a really, really, really strong foundation. But most of us don't know how to take that and put it where it needs to be put, right? It's just not something that we're taught. It's not something that, you know, some people I think inherently have a better ability of doing that than others. But but that's kind of why I wrote the book. Because when I got through, I looked at my my peers and some of them, like me, and I thought we're, you know, better off. Doesn't mean that we don't have like painful memories. Doesn't mean that we don't have uh, I, even scars, you know, it doesn't mean any of that, but that's part of who we are. And, and that's an acceptance process. We experience that. That's part of who we are. And moving forward, that's, like I said, a foundational piece. Trauma, we can all agree is very powerful because people will, some people on the other end of my spectrum, like my peers, opted to take their own life, right? Same experience, vastly different result. And it's just a matter of how you digest it. And I always say trauma is like a lightning bolt. Because lightning bolt has immense, immense power, right? It can kill you if it hits you, but if redirected, it can light a city, right? So, so that's kind of where we sit with our trauma. Our trauma can be our superpower or it can be our millstone that drags us down. And, you know, it can be foundational or it can be, you know, a, a, a constant obstacle. And so that's why I wrote the book is to kind of digest how to take those type of experiences, make them foundational. Put them where they need to put, and from that we've we've created a a, a, a workshop, a three day workshop that we're doing right now. It's called Trauma to Triumph, and that's that's we bring people in, teach them how to do that kind of stuff. It's pretty intense three days, and I don't know how many people I've had come to me after it and say this was my last resort, and thank you. Now we're good, we're good, and and I'll follow up with them, and they stay good. It's just a matter of recategorizing, filing. Filing the events, right? Yep. We had one of our mentors on, one of my mentors, Chief uh, Nate Cox. So awesome guy. I deployed with him. He taught me essentially everything I know about, you know, being a PJ on that, that first deployment. So I, I credit any any good part of me uh, is is his doing. Any bad part of me, I, I failed him because I should have been better, right? Uh, but he talks about, you know, having that mental armor. So a lot of the folks that we're talking about, like they haven't, they've taken on personal trauma in their lives and it's important for them to have those tools to figure out how to do it. But he talked about, you know, prior to the event, you can't put body armor on after an event and think it's going to work, right? You have to actually start that, that armor process, just like any mission, right? You throw your rig on, you make sure your, your plates are good and, and everything starts before you start taking that trauma on. So with all of the lessons that you've learned, like that first deployment, that reintegration thing, the failed relationship that you, you know, you tried for a decade to, to make happen and, and you just, you know, you couldn't because adult relationships are hard. What advice would you give people to start preparing for that now? Is it a mindset shift of, you know, hey, trauma can be just like I love the analogy of a lightning bolt, right? You know, the lightning bolt is coming. You just have to know how to redirect it. What are some tips or tricks or lessons that you've learned about taking that trauma in and being able to redirect it? Yeah. So, um, 
I agree with what you're saying. Like that was, in fact, that was my full focus is I wanted, I feel like we had a lot of of focus on post traumatic. Right. And I was like, I want to, I want to focus on pre traumatic, right. Let's let's prepare. And, and what I found is the stuff that I was doing that helped me prepare to have growth experiences from trauma um, also does help repair. So it kind of is a dual, a dual source, but like anything, if, you know, if I have a shin guard on and you kick me in the in the leg, uh, the shin guard's already there. I might hurt, and it, it's to heal it isn't going to take nearly as long. Whereas if I didn't, I can use the same process to heal it, but it's going to take longer. So that's really the difference in, in in the prepare versus repair. But but to your question, I, I got home and and what inspired me to write this book was was exactly the thing that I told you the discrepancy in and how people reacted to the stimulus. And so what I got together with a bunch of people with three letters behind their names, much smarter than me and said, why, why, why such a discrepancy in the same, same experiences resulted in very different, very different results. And um, so they drilled into me, right? They drilled in what, what were you doing? What were you? And we did find some things that we could teach like some things you can't teach because it's what you you know like if you have a nuclear family that helps if you have this it helps but but like those things you can't teach so we didn't focus on those because you can't teach them but mm-hmm. some things you could teach one of the practices that i was doing that i was doing because i knew i was a co-pilot being thrown into the i mean a, a young aircraft commander being thrown into the fire literally <laughs> firefights right and i was like you know, I didn't know to fly out of that RPG downwash until I had that experience, right? Um, and then I, and then I had that five minute old wisdom, and now I, now I know, now I can boom here. But I, I was shortly after that experience, I became the aircraft commander. So there was no Doug in the back seat to teach me that through doing it the right way. I had, to, I had to do it. I had to be the guy. You were Doug now. Yeah. yeah, I was the Doug, right? So I was the Doug. I'm the Doug now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look at me. Two thumbs up, this guy. But like, seriously, I was like, "What am I going to do?" You know, I don't know all these things. And so, what I started doing was a process called chair flying, which we are taught. You know, we're taught in the aviation community. It's just visualizing experiences and how you're going to do it. But I kind of ramped it up. My chair flying is like, you know, uh, meditation, visualization, role play, got together, had a love child. That's my chair flying, right? So um, I would do breathing exercise to get my mind right. I call it fertilizing your garden. You were going to plant some stuff in there. I want it to take root, right? So get your mind right. I'm in control of this space. We're going to go through some pretty significant experiences in as far as like traumatic imagination, <laughs> visualization, if you will. And so I would visualize, I would visualize, you know, my co-pilot being shot and how I'm going to react. And then when, anytime I got to a choke point where I didn't had to think about how I was going to react, I would make that decision, start over and go to, until there was no choke point. It would just go smoothly, smooth all the way through. Right. And then I would start doing variables like, okay, what if this doesn't react? Like I think it's going to react now. What am I going to do? Right. And it always started with do that. Right. And, you know, I had lots of engagements where things like I'd lose, I lose an engine, lose a generator, lose, you know, whatever. And, and it, I'd already trained my mind. I, okay. That's what we're going to do. Right. And, and the, the one that I mentioned before, um, we rolled it, we were getting cleared in hot on enemy position. We hadn't even fired yet. And they said, yeah, you're cleared in on this azimuth as we were rolling in 
my co-pilot starts screaming, screaming, because he just got his leg blown up, right? And then as as pressing as that is, <laughs> it was the third priority I had because I also had this really calm little advisory in the background go, rotor RPM low, <laughs> which is what keeps us in the air, right? Oh, yeah. no. So, the, the- for everybody listening out there, so a helicopter is essentially magic, right? Like it's not supposed to be able to fly. It's just so ugly that the earth repels it. There's a spinny choppy thing up top. And if that thing doesn't go at a certain spinny choppy speed, you're going to fall out of the sky. So that's a, that's a highly emotional event. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, I always teach guys, even to this day, all emergency procedures are the same. Keep the spinny thing spinning, right? Um, so that's it. So spinny thing was unspinning <laughs> or spinning slower. Yeah. That's and, and good so bad scale, that's thing, bad. It's an easy That's one. really bad. So, and then I'm, so we have two controls. One's in my left hand that makes it go uppy downy and one's in my right hand that makes it go righty lefty. And so collective and cyclic is what those are called. Counterintuitively to get the rotor to get, come back, you, like you're falling. So you, you want to pull up on that thing to make you go up. But if you do that, you'll exacerbate the decay of the rotor. You need to slam it down to increase the induced flow through the rotor to get the, the, the speed up. And we're only at like 200 feet at this point. So oh, not, a lot of, not a lot of give to do that. So I slammed it down, but we're also in a bank. So I'm slamming down in a bank trying to get it. And as I go to level out of the bank so that we can get it, the cyclic is jammed. So my, oh, the fun. control between my legs is jammed in the bank position, so we're staying in the bank. Now, the Apache has a backup control system. You have to break the mechanical linkage to get into it, and it's a fly-by-wire, and it's sloppy. It's kind of like a, not having power steering or whatever. And what I didn't know at the time is my co-pilot's leg was shot, femur exploded, his leg wrapped around the cyclic. That's why it was jammed. So as I slammed it across, um, obviously he screams again, but I did break it loose. And I remember his leg or the mechanical linkage. Well, his leg was already broken. (laughs) Yes. Yes. The trends, his leg was already in a really bad, bad state. Um, But I remember thinking when I did it, Boeing advertises in the go into bucks that you have one second easy on, meaning one second, once you break the mechanical linkage, that it will not take effect. And I remember thinking, why did they have that? That's dumb. Now I know why. Because we're already in a bank. If I broke over and it took immediate effect, we would have snap rolled and landed upside down, which helicopters don't do very well. And then, yeah. so I remember thinking as I did it, please work as advertised, you know, boom, <laughs> and then broke it back to center. And, and, and it did, it worked like it was supposed to. And we got a rotor back and we recovered, I don't know, you know, 20, 30 feet, whatever, and, and started to, to, to continue to fly out of there. Why did I tell that story? Because there's no way I could have actually done all of those actions in that one to two seconds. All the things I just told you was in like one to two seconds. No way I could have done that if I was consciously thinking about everything I needed to do at the moment. There's just not enough time. And there's then you would have hit those choke points that I was telling you about. Choke point, choke point, choke point. And you'd have to think and you'd, you'd have crashed. You just would have crashed. And so I would do this thing with the chair flying through the choke points, get to the point where I was actually role playing, moving my muscles, moving my hands, saying the words. I still do it to this day with difficult conversations and everything else. My son says, buddy, you're talking to yourself again. I was like, no, I'm just chair flying. Now, why do I say this? Because this is something that guys can take immediately and apply. Because when I got home and talked to the PhDs and said, this was something that I did, they said, well, that prepared you for your emergencies. But it also is stress inoculation, right? 
it also prepared your mind for trauma because you imagined the trauma in a controlled environment prior to it happening. So like an inoculation in a medical sense, when you get a weakened version of a virus and then when the real virus comes knocking, you're, you're good to go. It's the same type of thing. I pictured blowing people up before I blew them up. And then mm. when I saw it, it did look a little different than what I pictured, but I'd already worked my mental gymnastics through that. And so instead of leaving a big groove in my brain with traumatic, and maybe it's just a little dent, you know, <laughs> maybe it's just a little bit, you know, it's a little guy. Don't worry about that little guy. Don't worry um, about that little guy. Yeah. So, so that was one of the things we have seven different, different principles that were, are things that guys could start applying. And then, and then what this, this, this workshop is, a, is the next level of actually like, changing the whole perspective to just see it that way from the start. Right. But that, but that, that was a helpful thing that I was doing that I didn't even know I was doing. <laughs> well, and you yeah, can but, do it. But, but those are the types of things that, that I, I was talking about expectations, realities are, uh, and versus reality earlier, but like there are events and then there are experiences. Right. And I think one of the first steps that you got to take, like you, you went and saw those doctors as an individual. And so your experience was like your experience. And I think it's, it's easy for us to, to think that we all shared an event. Like we were talking earlier, like, oh, everybody went through the same event, like, or this same experience. Now, we all went through the same event with vastly different experiences, though. So it, it's easy for us to come back as like a team and be like, oh, I did the same thing this guy did. Like, he seems fine. I should be fine, you know, in, in different yeah. situations. But everybody's experience can be different. And it took me a long time to figure this out um, that, like, I don't, I, I shouldn't you know, be comparative about my experiences and I shouldn't compare their experiences and think that I know what they went through and all these other things. And so until we get down to the individual level and, and figure out, you know, what these people were, did experience, you know, and, and how far off of, of what their expectation was, that's when you can start really, you know, healing, I think, and, and getting to the, the root of the problem versus, you know, all this stuff that we all do, like, oh, like this guy got shot, this guy didn't get shot. So the guy that got shot obviously had a way worse experience. It's like, we have no idea. We have no idea how that process is, you know, upstairs. Yeah, you can't trauma compare. Um, it, it, it really is. A lot of it's how you're, 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 what you're doing with your head, right? What, how prepared you are versus how, what you let build. I mean, I think it was Char uh, David, David Harry Thoreau. That guy, you guys know him. Henry right? David Thoreau? Yeah. Henry Thoreau, David yeah, Thoreau, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Uh, he, who said, I've experienced hundreds of traumatic events. Some of them actually happen, right? So, like sometimes what I'm saying is you control the space with the meditation piece. If you do chair flying, like I just said, in an anxious or an anxiety sort of way, you can actually cause yourself damage because you're, you're creating a real emergency inside of your head that can actually cause trauma. Like I, and I think we've all done exactly what you said, Trent. Like I remember the fobbits that were like, I have PTSD. And you're like, no, you can't have PTSD. This is, right. you, you just sit out here, you go to DFAC, what, a, a little IDF here and there? Come on now. But we don't know what's going on inside that head. We don't know how yeah. they're perceiving the outside world. They, they see guys come back. Maybe they see guys come back that have blood on them and stuff. And that's enough to be like, whoa, what's going on? You know, yeah. we don't know. And everybody digests it differently. And, and the mind is super powerful. Yeah. And what a toxic thing, too. We've all done it, by the way. Like I've, I've said that, like I've, I've looked at people and been like, what do you, what do you mean? Like we were just outside, you know, on this rescue mission, we came back, like everybody's soaked in blood. Like people are like hosing a helicopter out and you're telling me like here on the safe confines of this base, 
what an what an amazingly immature and stupid thing that I did. Like if there, you know, we have a ton of regrets and a ton of things that you think about. I finally, you know, I think it's, this is way late. I mean, this is after like fourth or fifth deployment or something. But man, I'm taking an A1. I'm taking a personnel list and putting them on a place where they could go to the bathroom. And just for the, the trouble of going to the bathroom, they had to walk out to the porta potty on Bagram Airfield. And we would take seven or eight rockets a day during that time frame. And every once in a while, it would get really close. Like we had one that, no kidding, it hit the tent next to our building. And for their trouble of being a personnelist in the Air Force, they could die while taking a shit in a foreign country. Like how dare I tell them that that trauma, like that consistent fear of dying in a job that they didn't, you know, everybody gets into the military to to go fight war and, and whatever. Like I get it, right? Like you volunteer to, to go fight war in a time of need, but not everybody is signing up to be a combat MOS that we would expose those folks, you know, our, our parachute, you know, packers, our riggers that we would take with us. Like those dudes and dudettes get into the air force to pack air, you know, aircrew flight equipment, not to get, you know, hit by a rocket when they're just trying to go to the bathroom in a porta potty. Like that trauma is real trauma. And it took me a long time to not trauma compare, not, it, even, it, not you know, not just for myself, but for other people. I agree. And I did the same thing. I think we all, all did. but here's, here's the good news. We're having this conversation now. And I think that a lot of the military is shifting their focus the way that we are. Like we are moving in the right direction. There's still a long ways to go, but being it, just talking about this isn't something that we would have done to 10, 15 years ago. It wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have been a, a conversation that guys, we're all still in, right? We're all still in, right? right. Um, we, we wouldn't have this conversation. It wouldn't happen. You're not going to have it because. Right. It, it, so I think we're moving in the right direction, but yeah, you're right. You can't. And that's, that's the other thing that well, I kind of hit with people here. They, 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 everybody deals with trauma, right. And, and in different ways, like, and, and so don't just think, well, I didn't go to war, so I don't really have anything to, to, to deal with. Well, that's not true. Right. I mean, there's some pretty, one, there's some very traumatic things that happen here, but even even if it's not what we would consider very traumatic from like the outside perspective, it's all internal anyway. So however however traumatic it was to you is how traumatic it was to you. Well, I think I think there's some some therapeutic uh, uh, benefits to actually being able to go out there and face you know the monster beyond the wall. You know what I mean? Like like imagine just being stuck there and it's always there. And you never actually get to go out there and 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 do anything about it. Like that would that would drive me insane. Um, and but you do. I think you you get to go out there and face and get desensitized. And and, and on the rescue side, right? Like you got to go out there and face all of these things and see all of these things. And and you know if if all you see is that person, you know, when they land at Bagram and they get dragged off, like they they don't know how that got there. They don't know what's going on. You know, like and if it's the only event that they experience, it's different than like you. Like you're a, a rescue pilot. Like you saw crazy stuff. But like also you signed up for it and you trained for it and you get to go out there and do something about it versus just waiting around uh, for something to happen. Well, that's to, right? I think I don't remember which one of you guys said, I think it was Eric prepare in your mind, right? We, we do a great de great. We do a lot to prepare ourselves through our training, through our training. And, and like, th like you just said, they, that the personnelists, they didn't have that training, right? They didn't, they didn't, right. they didn't do the mental gymnastics of what you're going to do when when you, I mean, TJs, you guys do the whole moolah or blood. I mean, you see as close to real yeah. as as you can without being real before you do it, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the, one of the best, uh, compliments. It wasn't, it wasn't to me again, because I have no business aggrandizing myself, but, um, you know, one of the very, very first things, I think the very first mission we were in, we were in country very shortly. I was at Vaughn. I went to Bagram in 2015. And as soon as the team got there, they, I mean, we had the minimum time, like, you know, in the rescue community, as you well know, sir, we all say 72 hours, your team can turn over and in 72 hours, you're ready to take mission. That was actually the closest to that 72 hour time frame that we actually got a mission that we'd never been. I'd been in country for a, about a week longer than the team, but we no kidding. We had to go to this place called ABAD. And uh, for those that did, aren't tracking uh, what Colonel Slade was saying here is Afghanistan had these like terrorist sort of uh, villages and it would go all the way up. Now, here's another weird thing about helicopters. There's not supposed to be enemy above the spinny choppy thing, right? When you have an enemy above the spinny choppy thing, that's a bad thing, right? So less than 72 hours in, I distinctly remember there was a, a child that got shot by, uh, you know, some insurgents during a firefight. We had to go evac that child from an active firefight. As we were setting my, my two ship went in, they were hoisting somebody down into the village to go actually pick them up. And we were spinning over top of them while well, there were still people above us. So we were in the middle of this deep valley. And I distinctly remember looking up through the rotor disc and seeing people watching us and moving as we were like making, we're, you know, protecting our ship as we're hoisting those people in. The best compliment that we got is, you know, the mission was successful. The child's life was saved. So great job for my PJ element leader, whose name's Kyle. Getting that, there was like a 200 meter sled drag that he had to do to get this guy out. It, it was pretty hairy, but we got back. And the biggest compliment that I got from my young team member that was with me on the on the aircraft looked at me. He goes, "Hey, man, about halfway through that thing, I had to remind myself that this wasn't training because we had trained to a level where we were in crazy missions all the time." And you know, sir, you and I have figured out that we actually flew together um, in our past lives and, and crossed paths here and there. But I remember some of those times on that Nevada test and training range where the world is blowing up around you. Patients are moulaged and we would actually have uh, amputees come out. So you'd roll up on scene and there would be a human that was alive and you'd be like, oh no, their leg is actually gone. That's a huge thing to prepare, but you, you would be shocked if you just did exactly what you said, chair flying, putting yourself in that situation. What would I do in this situation? And then, oh, by the way, you can do that in your personal life. What would I do if I had to talk to my significant other about this extremely traumatic experience? And then when you actually have the conversation, it's not nearly as bad. Did, how, how many other parallels did you find that you learned, you know, these lessons that you learned from dealing with your own trauma and your own deployment stuff? How have you applied that in your personal life? to make your personal life and your relationships better. Yeah. That's the whole point really is that they were all applicable, right? Like, and you hit on a perfect example, you know, as, as your significant other, like we, we always, you know, we always say the right things and they never get offended and there's never any issues there. Right. Like, it's just, <laughs> right, yeah. they never get sick of us being on the road, being a bunch of knuckleheads with our friends yeah. while they're at home. No, it's smooth like butter always. Absolutely. But no, but seriously, like I will do, like, if I know I'm going to have a difficult conversation, I'll chair fly. Right. If I know I'm going to, even like, if I'm going to give counseling to a guy, like I'm going to chair fly that counseling too. Like I'm going to walk through those steps because that might be a traumatic experience for him or her. Right. Uh, and just anything. And that's why I say my kid gives me a hard time because he'll hear me talking and I'm just doing the actual role play part of that chair flying out loud. And it does help. It, it does. I mean, does it mean everything handles perfectly? No, 
but does it mean the impact of whatever happens is is lessened? Yeah. Nice. So as you move through, and I I, I, I hate doing this because I know it's going to embarrass you, but you know, for a guy with a distinguished flying cross, the Bronze Star, multiple combat deployments, you know, if people aren't tracking you, you made the decision that finally fixed your life, right? You got out of the army and over to the Air Force <laughs> and became a rescue pilot and worked. But now as you as you get to the end of your 27 years, your passion project is teaching people how to take that trauma in, how to turn it into something positive and not wear it, not wear it like a heavy ruck. You know, you can more use it to, to fuel yourself moving forward. Tell us all about your three day program, like really hit the socials. Tell us where to find you. Tell us what the, the purpose of it is. Like, just lay it out for us and let, let's hear what that next thing for you is going to be. Yeah, I mean, that is really my next thing right now. I'm I'm not fully retired, but I'm in my basically terminal leave status here going forward. And, and, and what I realized is I've had a really colorful career and I'm grateful for it. I'm here, I'm alive. And as you guys are, I'm grateful for the stuff that we've done together. And, and, and it, as, you know, it's just, you can't, you can't really put into words what those experiences are what they do, right? You just can't because I, 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 one of you guys was saying it like you're doing this crazy thing, and the next thing you know, you're drinking a, a you're drinking a rip at the at the defect, right? So, and then yeah. it's even more surreal when the next thing you are, you're back home at a at a freaking steakhouse, and you're like, seventy two hours later, you're sitting having a beer in Ireland on your way back to Bangor, right. Maine, on your your purple road. Yeah, there, there's a poem at the end of my book that I wrote called Permanent Revision, and it, it's all about. You could, it's the, the phrase that the, the, the refrain is you can imagine a war, you can imagine a fight, no matter what you imagine, you will not be right. Um, because you can't imagine it. You just have to experience it. But yeah, my next chapter is, is really this training. I, I, I did these practices that I captured in the book. And then after I got home, I went to this transformational training. It, it existed already. Right. And, uh, and, and it's a three day event. And part of the power of the event is that you don't know really the details of what's going to go. So I can't tell too many details because there's a dynamic tension sure. that's required in the event to, to get the result that we need to get. But bottom line is that the, one of the things at the beginning of the event is we say, what do you want to get out of this event? And people will put like connection and, you know, uh, peace and joy and all these, they'll fill up a whole page of stuff, right? What do you want to get out of this event? And like, okay, this is what we promised you. You make it through the three days and you give everything you got. You, you'll know, you'll know how to have this. And this isn't self-help and this isn't therapy. This is experiential transformation training. What you're going to realize is you never were broken. You were never broken. It's a perception that you're broken, right? You have all the tools within yourself to be the best version of yourself. It's a perspective shift. So within the three days, we'll push, we'll go through these things. And, and at the end, we'll check in with them and, the guy that's been doing it's been doing it for 20 years. Now I've we're adapting it to military and first responders for my trauma to triumph, right? Well, program, right? But he's been doing it for 20 years. I, I, I asked him, I said, have you ever had anybody say no? I didn't get that. And he said, no, it's hundred percent, hundred percent at the end of the training. People are like, yep, I understand. I got that. I got this. I got that. So it's really pretty powerful. And uh, right now uh, we just, we are just now starting our, our version of that. Now I've been mixing people in for a while, like just sending them to the training that he has. And so that I could get like whatever you want to call it data points. 
But um, triumphovertrauma.com or .net, sorry, .net. Let me make sure I just put it up. <laughs> it's actually in. Uh, <laughs> it's actually in work right now. What was this going to air? I don't know. Uh, we can get it out as quickly as you want, or uh, it could be a little bit of a delay. No big deal. We have a lot of content, so uh, that's that's no big deal. So you guys, yeah, so it'll probably be up if you guys, you know, if you wait like a month or something, it'll be it'll be up functional. But but basically, nice. there, that's where people can go and log in and and uh, and and and, and, re- and enroll for this event. But yeah, it's that's my that's what that's our intent right now. And and anybody listening that thinks they might be interested, go go do that. The other thing that we're going to have on there is we have a nonprofit associated with it because it does cost money for guys to go. Um, and we try to keep mm-hmm. it as, as affordable as possible, but we have a nonprofit to donate so that people that can't afford it, because a lot of people that need this training can't afford it. People donate. Right. And that gives scholarships to those that can't afford it to go. Right. So we, we're trying to think of everything and yeah. get everybody there. Fantastic. So Colonel Brian Slade, at the end of your 27 years, go, go pick up the book, uh, Cleared Hot, Lessons Learned About Life, Love, and Leadership While Flying the Apache Gunship, and Why I Believe a Prepared Mind Can Help Minimize PTSD. First and foremost, sir, thanks for coming on. Thanks for your service. Thanks for everything that you're doing. Make sure to check out, by the time that this airs, go check out uh, triumphovertrauma.net and check out everything that he's doing. Um, sir, we always end with a piece of advice, right? Like, you weren't a PJ. I wasn't a helicopter pilot. We didn't have the same experiences when we deploy. But a lot of those things, we see counterpoints in one another. And there's good advice that we always ask from our guests. So for everybody that's listening out there, what would be the one piece of advice that you would give to them, whether it be through dealing with trauma or trying to do something as impossible as becoming an Apache pilot or becoming a 60 pilot? What, what advice would you give to those folks out there? Nothing cosmic. But it's something that's been hit on a bunch of times, but it truly stands true is is foster an attitude of gratitude. If you can if you can really strengthen that muscle in you, whether it be just doing three things you're grateful for in the morning, three things you're grateful for at night. And I always say put a why behind it and try not to repeat. Right. If you can do something as simple as that, you will be moldable. Right. You will be able to to grow from experiences because you're going to see that any obstacle trial uh, trauma is actually an opportunity if you have that attitude of gratitude, right? And in our community, like, you know, we have that cre- the credo that others may live, right? And I feel like the, to follow up with the, the attitude of gratitude is serve, like find a way to serve, find a way to serve others because and, you know, for us, that others may live was a physical thing. Now I'm trying to shift it into like a, a mental thing that others may live that way holistically. Right. So um, because that also gives you it strengthens your gratitude and it also gives you a sense of purpose. And it, it really is a synergistic effect among, amongst human beings. So that's what I would say. Fantastic. Feels like a good place. to end. Trent, you got anything? No, appreciate you coming on, sir, and uh, appreciate you know turning things into positives. It's not yeah. one of the things that it, I think, like you said, ten or fifteen years ago, it was it was weird to say like, hey, we went through this stuff, and now it's gonna I'm gonna springboard off of that on, and make it a positive, and it, it's good to see all these things that are coming around. So I appreciate yeah. it. Appreciate you guys. Yeah.
Absolutely. Sir, proud of what you're doing. You keep crushing. Anytime you want to come back on, you let us know. The second that you go live and you're ready to talk about this thing or when you want to start talking about the next program that you're running or the next event, you let us know. You got an open invite to come on. I will. Everybody else, like, follow, subscribe. Just go ahead and caress that subscribe button. Turn on the notifications to make sure you don't miss this stuff in the future. Sir, we appreciate you. Everybody else, train hard. <laughs>